You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome to the broadcast. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. Here we are on this Tuesday evening, the 21st of August, or the 22nd, if you happen to be across the dateline in East Asia, as I am and as our guest is. Tonight we are joined on the line by the one and only, the indomitable, the indubitable, the uh, the one and only... Pepe Escobar, a roving correspondent for Asia Times Online and uh, whose work is cross-posted to uh, opednews.com and Al Jazeera and many, 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 many other online sites besides. So, Pepe, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us on the program tonight. Thanks for having me, James. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you, as you are a source of, a fount of knowledge on so many different parts of the geopolitics uh, that are making the headlines in one form or another, usually in a distorted form in so much of the Western media. So it's good to have you uh, here to sort through some of this. And there's so much to, on the plate that it's difficult to know where to begin. The uh, the Iran war hysteria that you've been writing about, uh, there's the, the latest in Syria, there's what's happening in Egypt, which of course is being much swept under the rug in the West, but still some pretty technical tonic uh, shifts that are happening there. But before we get into all of that, we've only got a couple of minutes here in this first segment. So first, let's uh, talk a little bit about yourself. I understand you're in Hong Kong right now. How are things in Hong Kong? It's very good because this is this is the best place to watch what's going on in China. In fact, you know, I, I've been to China many times, but I still prefer to be here because mm. here you have, uh, you know, the, the expect community and the financial community in Hong Kong with the best financial news and political news from all over the world. And you have the best Chinese specialists that come and go, and they always stop here. And, of course, if you want to report some very tricky things about China, you cannot do it from inside China. I'm sure uh, a lot of people have seen that uh, foreign journalists in China, now they're having a really, really tough time. So still Hong Kong is the best place to watch not only political developments in China, but even, uh, you know, like China's energy policy. How is it evolving? Uh, economic problems in the rich provinces in China, which are, you know, across, across the border from over here. It's a train ride from Hong Kong, half an hour, in fact. So this is the good thing. And, of course, in geopolitical terms, if you are in the underbelly of the dragon, Obviously, it's a wonderful place to watch what's going on across Eurasia as a whole. That's exactly right. I guess you're a canary in the coal mine for us there. Um, <laughs> I've only been to Hong Kong once about eight years ago, and I went to mainland China once earlier this year. And uh, the the disparity between Beijing and uh, Hong Kong was quite quite apparent to me, at least uh, in that eight-year gap. But I don't know what Hong Kong is like these days. Uh, since the, uh, the, the uh, Hong Kong is transferred back to China, what, about a decade and a half ago now, how have things really changed on a day-to-day basis there in Hong Kong? Well, it's a, it's a Cantonese city now, basically, with a, a smattering of expats, uh, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, uh, some Japanese, mostly in the financial business. But it's reverting to being what it was over a hundred years ago. It's a, it's an essentially Cantonese place. Like uh, the my neighborhood, around my neighborhood, in fact, with Saying near Shawan, which is about a, a twenty minute walk from central Hong Kong, Hong Kong Island. 
I'm surrounded only by country. I'm I'm about the only foreigner in my neighborhood, at least in my building and in the surrounding buildings. So it's very funny because people address me in Cantonese. They assume that I can master the nine. Well, surely you're fluent by now, right? Yes, which is not the case. Well, you'd think you'd think I'd be fluent in Japanese after being here eight years, but uh, I can I can hold a basic conversation, but I, it's difficult to read at any rate. Cantonese is even more complicated, James, mm-hmm. because of the, uh, the intonation. So we cannot master the yeah. intonation with only a few years. That they always tell me, ah, you need at least twenty-five years. <laughs> well, I got I got nihao down. I don't have that. <laughs> All right, let's take a short break. We'll be right back once again talking to Pepe Escobar. All right, welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Pepe Escobar. Once again, a, a correspondent for a number of uh, publications, but uh, tonight we're going to start off on atimes.com, the Asia Times Online, for his most recent edition of the Roving Eye series uh, on asiatimes.com. And if you're not subscribed to their RSS feed, I suggest you do. Uh, just a, a, all sorts of coverage on on the uh, on Asia generally and uh, and the world really that you're not going to get in a lot of the Western mainstream media. So let's start, talk about your latest column here: war fever as seen from Iran. We've definitely seen ratcheting up yet again of the war hysteria with Iran in the last few weeks. What's your take on what's going on? Uh, look, I, I I felt compelled to write an article from the Iranians' point of view, in fact, because. Especially over these past four to five weeks, uh, the level of uh, warmongering coming from Tel Aviv and from the outposts in Washington, especially, it's absolutely deafening. Uh, of course, I'm following this as well. I wrote about it as well. Uh, this is something I discussed with, with a new uh, collective foreign policy blog with some of my American colleagues and including some uh, two Israeli Israeli journalists as well. One of them is a defense correspondent. Uh, the good thing is that although we disagree politically on almost everything, we talk to each other a lot and we exchange information. So that's, I would say, this is the merit of this uh, weekly discussion in the blog. But the problem is uh, it's very hard to, to discuss with Israelis uh, without an is- Israelocentric point of view. You know, I, I was always trying to impress to them the perspective from Syria, from Lebanon, from Iran, from the Gulf countries, from the Muslim world at large. But uh, it's very, they usually don't listen. They are so immersed in uh, this uh, warmongering atmosphere, which is basically incited by the BB Barak duo, no? the prime minister and uh, the defense minister. And the most important thing is the players who really matter, which is the military intelligence people in Israel, they know that an attack against Iran is almost suicidal. Apart from that, they know that they don't have the hardware to do it. This means the latest uh, bunker buster bombs, which America has not transferred to Israel yet. Uh, the question of overflying rights. Are they going to overfly Iraqi territory, which is going to be relatively hostile? Or are they going to uh, overfly Saudi Arabia, which means, which implies uh, Iranian response against Saudi Arabia? Are they going to overfly Turkey, considering that uh, relations between Israel and Turkey are extremely frayed at the moment? Although, you know, the last 24 hours, 
there are some secret conversations now between Israel and Turkey. And we are all wondering if this concerns a possible attack before uh, November. But uh, And uh, Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres himself went on the record saying this is not <laughs> the way to do it and we cannot do it. And on top of it, General Martin Dempsey, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he laid down the law. He said, look, if you do it without the America, you cannot do it. It's simple as that. And everybody knows it. But still, the, the roar, especially coming from Bibi and Barack, on an everyday basis, if you follow the news on an everyday basis, is absolutely, it, it deafens everything else in terms of a coverage of the Middle East and even what's going on in that arc from the Middle East to, to East Asia. So it's, uh, the thing is, in, uh, the way I see it at the moment and the way the Iranians uh, are also seeing it, and I mean Iranian analysts, I'm, I'm talking about people who are not necessarily defending the Iranian regime. They're saying, look, uh, at, at the moment, uh, the negotiations, the P5 plus one negotiations are on a dead end because everything that was agreed before is not agreed anymore because the red lines keep being moved by the U.S. especially. And the red line used to be no Iranian enrichment. Now the red line is no enrichment at all, plus you roll over and die and follow our sanctions. This means there's no trade-off. This is what I usually call the roll-over-and-die school of diplomacy. This hasn't changed after talks in Baghdad, in Istanbul, in Moscow. Maybe there will be talks in Beijing the next time. But still, the goalposts keep being moved. Uh, this is the strategy of the Obama administration because they think that if this thing keeps being postponed, nothing will happen in the military front. But now Bibi and Barack by themselves uh, with a slim majority in their cabinet of eight, the eight wise men in Israel. Apparently now it's uh, four by four with uh, Bibi and Barack voting for war, which is still a very slim majority, right? They move the goalposts saying that basically Obama has to go to Israel and promise them that if anything moves, if anything does not move anymore in the negotiation front, they have a carte blanche to go for a strike and America will support them. Obviously, Obama will never do that for a number of reasons. First of all, because the Obama administration, they believe that this uh, strategy at the moment is working. This is highly debatable. It's not working in terms of mollifying the regime, but it's working against the Iranian population. So people in Washington, they expect that in the long run, the Iranians will rise up against their government. No, it's not going to happen like this. Because people over there, they know what is, uh, I, I would say, the utter incompetence in uh, economic terms by the government the Ahmadinejad administration, but they also know the pressures that the country is being uh, subjected to by foreign sanctions and the fact that Iran is encircled military all over the place, all, 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 all the borders of Iran. So uh, they can read uh, geopolitics in a very instinctive Persian way very well. They have 2,500 years of experience, in fact. So uh, you cannot fool the Iranian population. They know that the sanctions imposed by foreign powers, they are alienating themselves. And they so do you think the average Iranian 
understands understands what you're talking about there understands the bigger picture or or are they they do of course uh, in a very instinctive way but they do they know that the government is incompetent and they know at the same time that the foreign powers are squeezing Iran to the max and uh, it's very funny because in Iran this is usually attributed to the Brits because they have a very nasty colonial experience uh, with the Great Britain uh, they don't blame the Russians of course, they blame the Americans. If, if they are more or less uh, supporters of the regime, they blame the Americans. But, uh, you know, if you go to the countryside and you talk to a peasant, he's going to say, oh, they're British. You know, they've been doing this to us for the, the past 100 years. You know, so uh, they, they have a very clear sense of what's being uh, inflicted from abroad. Uh, at the same time, they defend uh, the, the right of the Iranian nation to reach Iranian, which is protected by the end. NPT, of course. Some people question, look, maybe now Khamenei should sit down and discuss something else with these foreign powers, because otherwise everybody here is going to be a sub-zero poor in six months or one year. So this leads us to another uh, precious bit of information, in fact, which is uh, there's a rumor in Tehran that Rafsanjani, previous president, twice, is now the new go-to man to negotiate something, an offer to the P5 plus one, an offer that nobody can refuse. So we still don't know if this is going to happen, but apparently Khamenei himself appointed Rafsanjani as his new emissary. So Rafsanjani went to Qom, he discussed with the Ayatollahs, he's discussing politically in Tehran, he has good contacts in Washington, D.C., this is very important, uh, he's respected in Europe, people actually talk, European diplomats actually talk to Rafsanjani, so maybe in the next few weeks we could have a new Iranian offer, but it will, it will not be extremely different from what they offered before, which is, okay, we don't enrich uranium up to 20%. Uh, we export uh, the extra uh, enrichment. Uh, uh, we can even uh, uh, agree with Russia enriching some uranium for us. But uh, if we make all these concessions, stop the sanctions, or at least start alleviating the sanctions. And that's, and that's the key problem at the moment, because the West won't not budge. Yeah. It's impossible to... The, the red line is... Uh, Nothing. There's nothing to discuss. You just follow what we want you to do. Right. Well, as you say, the the Obama administration is really set in in maintaining that status quo right now because they believe it's going to have that long-term effect. But we've seen Romney already make his pilgrimage to Israel to say that uh, he'd give carte blanche for them to to do whatever they want and America will back them up. I mean, do you think that's just political campaign rhetoric or do you think that would represent an actual shift in policy under Romney? Oh, yes, completely. Romney, Romney is an Israeli man. And in fact, he's being bankrolled by Sheldon Alderson, who happens to be, uh, you know, he's the publisher of the largest circulation uh, newspaper in Israel. Uh, he's going to give, uh, at the end of the day, probably over $100 million to the Romney campaign. Uh, he's a hardcore Zionist. Everybody knows that, even in the U.S., although you cannot obviously write that in the U.S. mainstream media. Uh, and yes, the first thing Romney will do, okay, you have to go ahead to attack. I wonder if his, let's say, President Romney in 2013, is he going to convince the Pentagon to, to give all the hardware that Israel needs for a successful attack? That's another story, because the Pentagon generals, they know, 
that if this happens, the U.S. will be dragged to yet another war in the Middle East, and nobody wants that. Even Pentagon generals don't want that anymore. Because they know what happened in Afghanistan, they know what happened in Iraq, and in what Iran. What happened in Afghanistan in the last 24 hours? Uh, apparently, yeah. one of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff's plane was hit by some shrapnel. Dempsey's plane, exactly. Yeah. The same Martin Dempsey who said, look, Israel cannot attack because the, they don't have what it takes. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine the possibilities of Iranian retaliation. So this also brings us to the regional component of the whole thing. Which, All right, uh, leave it there. We're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we'll, we'll continue right there talking once again to Pepe Escobar, atimes.com. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, reminding you that if you're out there listening live in Radioland, you can download the video and audio of this uh, podcast and broadcast from my website, CorbettReport.com. It will be up and available a few hours after tonight's episode airs. So let's continue on with our guest, Pepe Escobar, <clears throat> talking about all of the uh, things that are swirling around in the Middle East right now, and it is uh, seems to be picking up pace as more and more continues falling out from this mix. And we were just uh, talking about Iran and the latest Iran war hysteria, and we were about to bring in the, the wider regional implications of what's happening here. So let's, let's continue on with that. Okay, so uh, the Syrian question for the moment. Uh, it's very interesting what Obama said in his latest press conference. He introduced a new red line in Syria that didn't exist before, the famous weapons of mass destruction, the chemical weapons uh, possessed by the Bashar al-Assad regime. And the way Obama phrased it, this means that this, for the Obama administration, is the real red line. Very important implications. This means that Turkey, if they want to invade northern Syria, for instance, they are on their own. NATO is not going to do it, first of all, because the European countries will never approve it, and most of them are broke, by the way. And second, the Pentagon will never be involved in an invasion of Syria at the moment because the unforeseen consequences are cosmic, to say the least. And another thing, another implication, which is very important, the Americans will keep more or less... uh, Uh, as the State Department and the CIA are doing, distributing help among the insurgents, let's put it this way, but uh, they won't go the next step, which is to fully weaponize them. So from the point of view of the CIA, the insurgents, or we can call them the FSA gangs, the Free Syrian Army gangs, they are more or less on their own. So this means that the Syrian army now they have more or less a window of, I would say, the next two months, more or less, to expel them from the big cities for good. And, of course, they will be near the borders, the, uh, the Syrian-Turkish border, the Syrian-Jordanian border, but they won't be able to threat the big cities anymore. So what we could call the Lebanonization of the Syrian crisis it's an ongoing proposition. This could last for years, in fact. And the country would be more or less divided, more or less balkanized, in a northeast controlled by the Kurds, which is practically an autonomous region, uh, as we speak. 
in accord with the Bashar al-Assad regime, by the way. They gave the go-ahead for the Kurds. Okay, as long as you don't attack us, the government, you can do anything you want in Syria, Kurdistan. The big cities is still controlled by the Bashar al-Assad regime and the army. Uh, shelling neighborhoods where they think that uh, FSA gangs are concentrated. And vast swathes of the countryside and some of the borders that are more or less, uh, I wouldn't say controlled, but at, at least uh, rebel infested. Let's put it this way. So this is a Lebanonization scenario. And we could even go further and say this is a Somalization scenario. What does that imply? That the Syrian army will be caught in a conflict that could last for years. They will be weakened and they will be stretched to the limit. Who profits from this situation? The Israelis, because this is exactly what the Israelis want. They want a weakened Syrian army. So if there is any attack on Iran, there won't be any help coming from Syria. And obviously Hezbollah will be, because Syria is the conduit between uh, Iran and Hezbollah through Syria. Uh, Hezbollah will be obviously in trouble in terms of replenishing their arsenals. So uh, I would say the megalomaniac Israeli scenario, according to Bibi and Barak, of course, uh, a lot of uh, very well-informed players in Israel, they don't agree with this by all means, would be, okay, we can attack uh, Iran, the Americans will support it because they have to, the Syrians won't do anything because they are caught in the middle of a Lebanonization scenario. And Hezbollah, because they are very much afraid of being attacked by us as well, they won't do anything at all. So this is their wishful thinking scenario, which obviously we all know it's not going to happen like this. <laughs> but this is just to show you uh, the strategic thinking by B.B. Barak. This is what they're trying to sell to their own military intelligence chiefs, and nobody's convinced. Well, uh, you mentioned, uh, for example, the CIA element um, with the insurgents and the Free Syrian Army gangs, and uh, it was interesting when Reuters came out earlier this month, and I guess they were left off, let off the Rothschild leash long enough to uh, to report on the CIA uh, orders that Obama signed off on earlier this year. That, as you put it on another uh, station, uh, fishermen in Fiji knew about. I mean, everyone in the world knew about this, so it wasn't exactly a breaking story. But uh, why 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 is so much coming out now about what's going on? on the ground in Syria. Why is so much of this suddenly being let out? Is it simply just a matter of them not being able to contain this information any longer? That's uh, that's one of the possibilities, James. And, and now, even in Washington, they finally woke up to the fact that uh, Al-Qaeda-related uh, Salafi jihadi gangs and fighters, not only crossing the border from Iraq, but from all over the world, from Pakistan, and even from London, speaking with, with London accents. You know, This was uh, verified on the spot by foreign journalists already. They are all over the place in Syria. Absolutely. And it's all coming out right now. It's a very interesting situation. All right, we're going to have to take another break, but once again, we are talking to Pepe Escobar. If you'd like to get in and ask any questions, 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. We'll be back right after these messages. All 
All right, friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio. Once again tonight, we're talking to Pepe Escobar of atimes.com and Al Jazeera and opednews.com. And as I say, many sites online. He's not only roving around the actual world, he's also roving around cyberspace. So if you can pin him down, that would be an admirable feat. But we have him here for the next uh, half hour at any rate. So once again, if you'd like to get in, 1-800-313-9443. Or you can tweet your question at Corbett Report, and I'll do my best to get to it live here on air. So, uh, Pepe, let's let's move on. Um, we've we've been talking about Iran and Syria. Uh, there's another thing that, going on that I'd like to talk about in Egypt, which uh, is is some pretty important things happening there. But before we get to that, I want to take a look at a different take that you had on what's happening in Syria, where you wrote uh, an article. It was cross posted to opednews.com back on August sixth. Syria's pipelineistan war. Uh, for people who don't know about uh, what, what the pipeline politics of the Syria war might be about, let's let's tell them about that. Well, there's a very important development which happened uh, more or less a year ago. Uh, this was uh, when the Syrian uprising was already on. Uh, it had started in the in the margins of Syrian society near the borders, uh, the Syrian uh, Jordanian border and Syrian Turkish border. It was not already in Damascus and in Aleppo. Iran, Iraq, and Syria signed a $10 billion agreement to build a gas pipeline coming from the South Sparse gas fields in Iran, which are the largest in the world, by the way. They share it with Qatar. Uh, across Iraq, uh, across e- Syria, uh, the final point would be uh, in the eastern Mediterranean in the, in the Syrian shoreline, or there could be an extension to Lebanon as well. The most important thing is that if this pipeline is ever built, it bypasses Turkey. Because Turkey, their energy policy hinges on one single thing. We are the number one crossroads, uh, energy crossroads in Southwest Asia, the Middle East, the Caucasus, you name it. Uh, All the oil and gas that uh, Western Europe needs comes through here, and then we sell it. This pipeline bypassing Turkey, this policy is in disarray because European customers will say, oh, oh, we can buy from Iran and Iraq directly as well. So uh, this could be, of course, there is no 100% evidence. This could be a casus belli and would explain why the Turkish foreign policy, which until the Syrian uh, spring or winter, let's put it this way, was officially called zero problems with our neighbors, as it was established by uh, their prime minister, Davut Oglu, 10 years ago when he was still a professor in, uh, in Turkey. Suddenly became, uh, let's create a huge problem with our number one neighbor, Syria. That's, that's the only possible explanation. And in fact, uh, Turkish analysts, they are still baffled about uh, uh, Erdogan, Gul, and the AKP parties hard on on uh, regime change in Syria. Nobody has come up with an overall explanation. The Turks themselves. So I advance this possibility that I, I think this should be included in the mix as well. Because for Turkey at the moment, they depend on uh, energy from uh, Gazprom in Russia. And they depend from gas from Iran. They simply cannot have a pipeline that bypasses them completely. Not only because they import most of their energy, uh, around 90% of their energy, but because they need to resell it to Europe. Uh, 
And this is a very good bargaining power for Turkey to, to tell the Europeans, look, uh, remember the, our dossier of accession to the Europe, European Union. So if you, we solve your energy problems, so why don't you reconsider our admission to the EU? So this could explain the whole thing. Of course, it's not, uh, I would say this might explain 50% of the whole thing. The, and the, the other problem from the Turkish point of view is that the unintended consequences of this hard-on to have regime change in Syria, now they have the Kurdish question right in there, blowing up in front of their faces. They have an Iraqi Kurdistan that is autonomous, with which they do business, of course, But now they have a Syrian Kurdistan that's also autonomous, which they think is harboring uh, PKK communist guerrillas. They know that uh, Iraqi Kurdistan and Syria Kurdistan, they are talking. Uh, in fact, they sealed the deal in Irbil, in Iraq Kurdistan, that uh, the, the two major Syrian Kurdish parties, now they run Syria Kurdistan jointly. And the Turks are terrified. Why? Because they know that if this union spreads to the Iranian Kurds, and this, if this wakes up the 17 million Kurds that live inside Turkey, we are on our way to greater Kurdistan sooner or later. And this is Turkey's ultimate nightmare. And this is where we are as we speak. Absolutely. I would say 30% of the road is already, uh, has, been, has already been paved. Hmm. And this explains why they they are threatening. Ankara is threatening to invade Syria, Kurdistan, practically on an everyday basis from now on. Yeah. If they do it, they're going to be in serious trouble because NATO is not going to help them. And on top of it, their top generals, they're in jail. Mm -hmm. A coup of a coup against the AKP party. Right. We, we could, should, and probably will do an entire episode just on Turkey itself because it has yeah. such an important part in all of this. And, uh, and it, it has been really inscrutable why they've done such an about face with their foreign policy, etc. But, uh, but we have a caller on the line, so let's go to the calls. We have Eric in Michigan. So, Eric, thanks for joining us on the line tonight. Well, thank you. Great to be with you. A very enlightening interview. There is a investigative journalist whom you may know of, uh, William Grigg, uh, uh, republicmagazine.com. Um, I've heard his interviews at Radio Liberty. Um, and um, what he's brought out, as well as others, uh, is that uh, the CIA has been uh, infamously, insidiously involved in all types of subterfuge involving uh, its uh, operatives uh, in countries, including Turkey, a guy by the name of Gulen, uh, who's been totally financed by the CIA, and he led some sort of a, uh, well, internal political uh, coup on the government and is has become radicalized uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood as it has throughout much of the Mideast. Wherever these uh, uprisings have occurred, the Muslim Brotherhood, which was a creation of MI6 in 1928, and uh, since that time has been, of course, uh, secretly supported uh, by 
CIA, State Department, and I'm sure MI6, and I suspect uh, Israeli, Mossad, whatever. Because, you see, we have to have enemies, right, in order to justify uh, a strategy of tension. Mm -hmm. So so they go out and they create. Look at Karzai in Afghanistan. Where did he come from? Where was he educated? Good old U.S. He came out of Exxon Mobil Corporation. I thought it was you. And then we had. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then we had uh, the project for New American Century. Right, I saw this on Free Speech TV when I used to have a television. I had Dish Network, and here's this guy Wolfowitz, the official spokesman of uh, Rumsfeld, Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell. William Bennett, etc. He says, uh, I guess around January 2000 or maybe 2001, that the, the PNAC organization, Project for New American Century, needed a new Pearl Harbor to garner American patriot support for a new global American empire. And then uh, their uh, Luciferian skull and bones Bush Laden El Presidente comes out and says after 9-11, Oh, and by the way, on the 10th of September, uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld announced 2.3 trillion missing from the Pentagon's coffers. Uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so subsequent, uh, Junior Skull and Bones Bush Laden says, ah, uh, it's the new Crusades. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? The Crusades historically have been a wars against the Muslims, right? Oh, uh, a slip of the lip, I'm sure. He just he meant to say something more diplomatic, but it just came out wrong, I'm sure. <laughs> right. All right, Eric, do you have a question for Pepe? So, so I'm wondering if, if your guest would agree that what we have here is a totally contrived scenario on behalf of this infamous uh, Brotherhood of Darkness, or whatever you want to call it, uh, Tex Mars you know, a retired Air Force officer down in Austin has a ministry called Conspiracy World and Power Prophecy, and he's collated all sorts of, of, of damning evidence from multiple sources, which seems to prove that Rothschild, the Rothschild criminal banker cabal that apparently rules the world through their international gangster bankster central banking operations are hell-bent on destroying all freedom-loving people around the world. All right, wherever all they right Eric, let's get, let's get Pepe's take on this. So, uh, Pepe, let's talk about some of the external forces that have been uh, puppeteering the region for decades, centuries, really, when we start to look at the colonial history of all of this. What is the role that these outside players have had in shaping the, the domestic politics of these various countries? Look, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting because uh, I, I hate conspiracy theories. Uh, I, I try to go after facts. You know, that, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm doing journalism, basically. But you just cannot help it. When you, when you see the progression, especially after the end of the Second World War, uh, how this, the, the Cold War was organized. Okay, first we need an enemy. What's the enemy? The Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union was gone, we need another enemy. Oh, China is too powerful, we cannot take them on. So let's get an enemy that we can take on that's easy to go. Muslims. So we disguise this as war against terrorism. Now, 
it's now this is even forgotten. The enemy is uh, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, the so-called axis of resistance of uh, the new axis of evil. So you know, de depending on uh, circumstances and uh, fleeting stuff, you know, you change your enemy and you adapt to the same old thing. So. I was discussing this with a very good French strategist like two months ago. So the question is, is the U.S. an empire per se or the U.S. or the U.S. elite? I'm not talking the U.S. as a whole because I would say tens of millions of Americans disagree with the state of things, if not, uh, if not <laughs> over 100 million or so. Uh, or is the U.S. just the militarized arm of this shady cabal of uh, international banksters and uh, very, very shady, dodgy elites uh, and people who manipulate the financial system. And, of course, they have a nation-state with a very powerful military to implement what they want. So I think this is the key question that we should be asking to explain what's been happening for the past 50 years and for the next 50, for that matter. Well, it's an important point of that is the creation of the the enemies that are then used uh, as the the boogeyman to justify the the foreign invasions, etc. And we've seen that time and time again, of course, with the Soviet boogeyman and then the Al Qaeda boogeyman, and of course the goalpost is shifting. And now we have the Muslim Brotherhood, as he mentioned, taking power in Egypt, for example, with uh, President Morsi, uh, who has uh, committed a coup against the military junta that was ruling. Uh, it seems quite a, an, a remarkable change, but I understand that the Emir of Qatar might have had something to do with this. Tell us about that connection. Yeah, this is fascinating because the, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Obama administration, uh, after Morsi was finally elected, remember that uh, the, the SCAF was debating for over a week if they would ratify uh, the election of a Muslim Brotherhood president or not. So obviously they had some input straight from Washington. Look, you have to respect, you have to respect the polls. Otherwise you're going to be in trouble from our side as well. So then the scuff says, okay, the Muslim Brotherhood president won. But before they did that, there was a military coup, which was uh, we're going to, you know, all, basically all his presidential powers will be with us, scuff, the military council. So what happened after that is that I would say, what, a month and a half later, Morsi committed a coup within a coup. And that's even more interesting because this is something that uh, I think all of us were expecting this to happen within the next three, four, five, six years maybe. It happened in a month and a half. You know, he sent the, the SCAF leaders, the old ones, the guys who were appointed, uh, appointed by Mubarak, to the barracks or to their yachts in Monte Carlo or whatever, uh, the new officers who wanted to go up, you know, get ahead in life, they were in cahoots with the Muslim Brotherhood leadership. And now the Americans are stuck. I, I would say the more uh, conservative uh, wing of the establishment in Washington, now they're saying, wow, now Egypt is a caliphate. Morsi is the new, Morsi is the new caliph. Wow, you worked for it. In fact, you know, you facilitated this, you know. So now, and now the Muslim Brotherhood is going to be, you, you can bet on this. Forget about Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is dead. And Al-Qaeda is, is an enemy that is not profitable anymore. The enemy now, it, the, there are two key enemies. The one that I mentioned, the axis of resistance, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, 
or new axis of evil. And now the Muslim Brotherhood, which according to right-wingers in America, is going to take over the whole Middle East and destabilize our allies, especially the House of Saud and the petro-monarchies in the Gulf. And this, you know, what's inside this whole thing is an enormous contradiction, to say the least. The Emir of Qatar, which is one of the best American allies in the world, he supports the Muslim Brotherhood, period. That's the official foreign policy of Qatar. We support the Muslim Brotherhood anywhere. In Egypt, the Emir himself went to Qatar. They had a, a, a need. Uh, went a to din- Cairo, you mean? Exactly. And he gave four stars, $2 billion to Egypt because Egypt is absolutely broke. They're still waiting for a deal from the IMF, which comes with lots of uh, conditionalities. The Emir, okay, here's $2 billion for you just to get by for the next 40 or 50 days. Then we talk later. He supports uh, everything that Morsi does. And on top of it, Morsi... Not only he went to Saudi Arabia, he didn't get anything from the Saudis. And that's why the Emir of Qatar went there to, you know, replenish the void. Morris is going to Tehran in a few days for the non-flight summit. This is one of the most important things that happened in the Middle East, I would say, for the past 30 years. Absolutely. Let's let's hold it there. We're going to take another short break, but we'll come back just to wrap everything up uh, just after this break. All right, welcome back to the program, friends. Here we are with Pepe Escobar in the last few minutes of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio. And just a reminder that we will be having Brock West of Asia-Pacific Perspective on tomorrow night to talk more about the Asia-Pacific region, which I'm focusing on more and more in my work. Hopefully we can have uh, Pepe on sometime in the future to talk more about Asia-Pacific and some of the things going on in my my neighborhood here. But tonight uh, we're talking about what's happening in the Middle East and North Africa and some of the other hot spots. And we were just talking about Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood before the break. So, Pepe, let's uh, wrap things up and bring things into the home stretch talking about Egypt and Iran. Okay, this is absolutely essential. Uh, I, I would like to stress this again. Uh, in, in terms of geo geopolitics of the Middle East is one of the most important things happening for the past 30 years. It's uh, the relationship between Egypt and Iran may be back in business. Very important points. Uh, The president of Egypt, Morsi, is going to the summit of the non-aligned movement, NAM, in Tehran, next week. Their meeting is probably going to be at the end of next week in Tehran itself. Uh, this is very important because they, ha- they have already been talking, the Muslim Brotherhood and the leadership in Tehran. Uh, the vice president of Iran went personally to Cairo to hand over the invitation for Morsi to go to Tehran for the summit. Uh, 180 non-aligned nations are represented by the non-aligned movement now. So this means this is the real bulk of the so-called international community that we read every day in Western mainstream media. The international community is not the U.S., Canada, the European Union, and the GCC petromonarchies. These people are much more representative. And don't forget, the BRICS countries are part of the non-aligned movement as well. So in terms of uh, national representation, in terms of population, we're talking about at least 80% 
of the international community. And of course, they are, over these past decades, they have not been very influential, the non-aligned movement. So now, with the BRICS inside, and the fact that the, the whole world is becoming totally polarized, and most countries in the South, they are trying to find an alternative to the domination of the Atlanticist powers. The NAM now, it's much more important than it was, I would say, 10 years ago, even 20 years ago. So inside the NAM, this relationship between Egypt and Iran is essential because Egypt, basically what the Muslim Brotherhood wants to do in terms of foreign policy, Egypt's foreign policy, is to restore Egypt as a central player in the Middle East. The central player is not what Egyptians, off the record, would say a bunch of barbarians from the desert in Saudi Arabia or the Petro Monarchies. Just, just because they are loaded doesn't mean that they are enlightened. And they are not. Most of them are Wahhabis, in fact. They are bent on an interpretation of Islam that harks back to the 7th century. So we cannot talk about enlightenment over there. Egypt, historically, culturally, politically, has always been the most important Arab nation and power. So they want to get back to the status that they had before. And the conversation between an Islamic Republic of Iran, whatever you think about their uh, regime, which is a hardcore theocracy that doesn't respect human rights, basically. I agree with that. But the fact that they are discussing Egyptians send shivers down the spine of everyone that is ruling in Paris, London, the Poodles, or especially in Washington. Because this could be the beginning of the whole realignment, geopolitical realignment of the Middle East. Right. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We're running straight out of time now. So, uh, Pepe, I I absolutely appreciate your time today and every time you're on the program always a data dump of information so Pepe Escobar once again you can find him atimes.com up at news.com many other sites online Uh, Pepe thank you so much for your time tonight thank you James always a pleasure and thanks to all the listeners as well absolutely thank you all out there for listening and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in 23 hours wonderful